how many of you, besides Lance Kohler, had a mixed cassette tape of your favorite 80s music <laughs> as a teenager and are willing to admit it? Okay, yes, okay, very good. Okay. Uh, as a child of the 80s, Stella Weddle once made, like many of you, a mixtape of her favorite 80s songs to take with her on vacation with her family to Spain back in 1993. They had all her favorite songs, 20 actually, of her favorite songs. However, like many teenagers, Stella, sadly, she misplaced her cassette during her family's various trips to a bunch of the various beaches there in Spain. 1993. So you can imagine then her amazement when over 25 years later, Stella found her mixed tape. And she found it, get this, at a Stockholm art exhibit. The tape had been recovered by a UK-based artist named Mandy Barker after it was found washed up on a nearby Spanish beach island. Barker let it dry in a windowsill for over a year and then eventually took it to an audio restoration specialist. And guess what? The cassette tape still works. Here's a picture of it. Now tell me, if you had lost a cassette tape, some of you probably don't even know what this is, you kids, I'm just not realizing this. <laughs> I just don't tell me, if you had lost a cassette tape over 25 years ago, would you expect it to still work? No, no I, I know I wouldn't. It's, it's surprising, like something like this would still function after all that time, especially when part of that time was floating in the ocean. But, but you know what shouldn't surprise us? What should not surprise us is that God's word always functions. That is, it never fades no matter the length of time. And why ought we believe this? We ought to believe it because that's precisely what we've been learning in our study of 2 Samuel. This morning, we're once again going to look at 2 Samuel chapter 15 through chapter 16, verse 14. And as I mentioned last week, uh, this passage, those, that bracket there, it's, it's one connected unit. It begins with Absalom conspiring to take the throne from his father David, and then it ends with David fleeing from Jerusalem, and once again, we find him on the run in exile. This is, this is one unit. Yet what we have to understand is that all the loss, all the hardship David experiences, all the hardship he's going through in this passage, every bit of it is in fulfillment of God's word. That is the very word God spoke to David through the prophet Nathan after David sinned with Bathsheba and Uriah in chapter 12. Remember that? I'm going to throw it back up on the screen. Listen to what God said to David in the wake of his sin. He says this, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me 
and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. And then God says this, Thus says the Lord, chapter 12, Behold, I, God speaking, will raise up evil against you out of your own house. Please hear me. Even though it's been many years, kind of like it's been many years since Stella lost that cassette tape, even though it's been many years since God played this soundtrack to David, God's word has not faded away. The very thing God said would happen as a result of David's sin is playing out in our passage this morning. God is bringing his word to pass. It always functions. It always works. No matter the time. Indeed, we know what God is doing to David in these chapters, and this is what we began to touch on last week, God is disciplining him. Has, has God forgiven, forgiven David of his sin? Yes. Does God love David? Absolutely. And it's precisely because God loves David that he brings about these consequences. The Lord, as we're going to see in real time here, is disciplining the son he loves. That is what these chapters are all about. And what we learn in Psalm 3, from the very words of David himself, is that this discipline of the Lord, it produces in him a renewed zeal and love for God. As we discussed last week, Psalm 3 was written while David was fleeing from Absalom. So somewhere between chapter 15, verse 1, in chapter 16, verse 14, David began to write this psalm. And listen to what he says, what, how, the, how the discipline has had an effect on his life. He says this. He says, O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Now notice the change here. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the lifter of my head. Notice as a result of the Lord's discipline, what now is David's glory? Who is? Say it like you mean it. The Lord. That is what bears the most weight, what bears the most significance, the most importance in David's life is not a palace, is not a throne, is not concubines, is not wives, is not his relationship with his children what bears the most importance? His glory is God and God alone. You see, faith, when we interpret our passage this morning, chapter 15 through the middle of 16, in light of the prophet Nathan's statement in chapter 12, and what we learn from David in Psalm 3, I want to argue a very important truth begins to emerge, and that is this, and that is, God disciplines us so he will be our glory. That is, God brings hardships, trials into our lives. He, he disciplines us. He brings out his pruning shears. 
so that we would come to the same conclusion as David in Psalm 3, that God and God alone is worthy of our full devotion. He is, he is to be that which bears the most weight in my life. So that if we have him, we have everything. And again, I, I mentioned it last week, but I'm just going to, again, it's worth repeating, this is not an anomaly in Scripture. The truth we see illustrated here in the Second Samuel is shouted loudly for all to hear in the New Testament. Right? God disciplines us. So He will be our glory. So here's the question I want us to consider uh, for our time this, this morning, and that is how ought we live in light of this truth? What is this practically mean for us today? How should we respond to the truth that God disciplines us so he will be our glory? Well, I believe uh, our text moves us towards three really important applications. And we looked at the first one last week, and that is this. In light of this truth, we ought to trust God's purposes. Uh, you'll recall that the first 12 verses of chapter 15 are all about Absalom conspiring to take over the throne of his father, David. Uh, there's a lot of evil, a lot of deceit, a lot of trickery. There's a lot of sin happening in the first couple of verses of chapter 15. Absalom sins in an abundance of ways. Indeed, he has no regard, none for God's will. And yet notice, he actually fulfills God's will, does he not? His actions, his evil against his dad are in fulfillment of God's word against David in chapter 12. And, and again, this is, this is important for us just to pause and to notice. In the opening verses of chapter 15, you know what God is doing? God is using the evil actions of someone, Absalom, in order to accomplish his purposes. Amidst all this chaos, amidst all the deceit, God has a purpose for David. And faith, it's the same purpose that God has for you amidst hardships and trials. And that is, you would reorient your life so that God and God alone would be your glory. So that's why we just touched on briefly last week that I think the application for us is to trust God's purposes. That is, we shouldn't scorn or despise his reproof. We should rather welcome trials, the trials that God brings, believing his word when he says, and again, he shouts it loudly in the New Testament, when he says that he's bringing these hardships into our lives for his glory and our good to make us more like Jesus. You see, faith, discipline and trials are two sides of the same coin. God's purpose in both is the same, and our response to both is to be the same as well, and that is we're to turn towards Him. And, and just to validate this point even more, does not the author of Hebrews 12 make this point abundantly clear? What do we learn in, in Hebrews 12? 
we learn that as we run the race of faith, as we persevere, God as our Father, He disciplines us as sons and daughters so that we would be more like Christ. And the question is, do we trust God's purpose for the trials He brings in our lives? So let me, so let me ask you, how did it go for you this week? How did you respond to the difficulty you experienced? Was there grumbling and complaining? Did you respond in sin? Or did you receive it as being from your good God? Did you remember that that he is at hand and he wants to work in you? Personally, I... uh, Please know that there, there's a hazard to my profession. And you know what that hazard is? <laughs> Either right before or right after God calls a pastor to preach that word, he plows that word through the preacher. And God gave me multiple opportunities to apply this this week. And I have to tell you, and I give God all the praise and glory, because in the midst of those hardships, God in his kindness, by the Spirit, he quickened my mind to remember this. That my Father is in control, and whatever difficulty I'm experiencing right now, it has not escaped his notice. Indeed, he has allowed it, and he wants to use it to make me more like Jesus. And I have to tell you, that changed the way I responded. I didn't respond perfectly. (laughs) Please hear me. I have many miles to go. But I praise the Lord that in his kindness, he helped me remember this. God wants us to trust his purpose in hardships. But now there there are two additional applications this text directs us to that I want to bring to your attention this morning. So uh, if you haven't already, please turn within your Bibles to 2 Samuel. That's page 266 in that paperback Bible. When we last left David, he was fleeing for his life from Jerusalem. And as we're about to see, the author describes David's departure from Jerusalem kind of in slow motion. Interestingly enough, the Civil War, when it actually comes about, get a load of this, the author only devotes three verses to it. Yet, the author devotes 39 verses to David's walk out of the city. Why is this? Well, Old Testament scholar Peter Lightheart, I think, shed some valuable light here. He insightfully points out that through the various people David meets on his journey out, David's plight from Jerusalem is a pageant of his life in reverse order. That is, this section intentionally highlights the unraveling of David's kingdom, again emphasizing the Lord's disciplined hand upon him. And the first person he meets on his way out is a foreigner, Ittai the Gittite. That's a fun name to say, Ittai the Gittite. 
And interestingly enough, this foreigner, he chooses to follow David into exile. Notice the direction. They all are going there in verse 23. Follow along with me in your copy of God's Word. Listen to what it says. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the what? The wilderness. Nothing could suggest the end of David's kingdom and the loss it represented more, than vivid, more vividly than this procession of David and his people towards the wilderness. The very place that reminds us of Israel's history when they had no land, they had no place or security. Now notice who, who David meets next in verses 24 through 25. And again, what we're going to do is, as we see David interacting with these people, I believe we have some valuable counsel here as to how we're to respond and live in light of the Lord's discipline. Okay? So notice who he meets. More importantly, notice how he responds. Look at verses 24 and following. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came up also with all the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the sea. Now keep in mind, the ark of God represents the very presence of God, right? So this is not insignificant. Verse 25, Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he, referring to God, says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. What an incredible statement. Let God do to me what seems good to him. Verse 27, the king also said to Zadok the priest, are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I'll wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem and they remained there. Did you know that Shaquille O'Neal, former professional basketball player, Hall of Famer, do you know Shaquille O'Neal made the largest Walmart purchase of all time? You know, you know how much he spent in one visit? $70,000. He had just been traded from Miami to Phoenix, and when he arrived in Phoenix, the team had an apartment for him, but nothing was in it. So you know what he did? At 2 in the morning, he went to Walmart and bought everything for his apartment. He completely furnished the entire apartment, and all for the low, low price of $70,000. You see, by his own admission, Shaq admitted, he's like, I have no patience. 
he believed he needed certain pieces of furniture. Notice this section that I just read, it has to do with a certain type of furniture, does it not? And what is that certain type of furniture? The Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant. Yet as essential as Shaq might think a couch, a king-sized bed, or even a dining room table might be, these all pale in comparison to the ark. And you know why? Because as we talked about, the ark represents the very presence of God. Now, now I want you to notice, notice the opportunity right in front of David. Absalom is building a conspiracy to take the throne. David is fleeing for his life. And on his way out, what comes his way? The opportunity to take the ark of God with him. What an advantage that would be over Absalom. Yet does David take it with him? No. You see, David knew better. David knew better than trying to coerce or control God. I mean, think back for a moment. We've been working through 1 and 2 Samuel. Think back to 1 Samuel chapter 4. Do you remember what happened in that chapter? Israel is fighting the Philistines. And they go out to fight the Philistines, and they get beat. So like, like I know. Let's bring the ark of God. Like, God's going to win it for us. We're going we're gonna to use God to beat the Philistines. And they go back out to fight the Philistines, and what happens? They get routed by the Philistines. The idea being God can't be manipulated. You see, David knows, please hear me, his future does not depend on furniture, but on the favor of God. As pastor and author Richard Phillips states, he says, here we see a turning point in David's spiritual state. Again, this is, this is the fruit of discipline, the Lord's discipline in David's life. He says, instead of seeking the misuse of the holy ark, he submits himself to the Lord's judgment or deliverance. And faith, here's another mark of someone whose glory is God, and that is this, they willingly submit to God's authority. How should we live in light of this truth that God disciplines us so He will be our glory? It's this, we ought to submit to God's authority. That is, we allow God to be God. I mean, notice how clearly this is seen in David's statement in verses 25 and 26. Dale Ralph, Ralph Davis summarizes the heart behind David's statement. He says this. He says, David submits to Yahweh's sovereign sway. Yahweh show, will show grace or he will not delight in me. Should it be the latter? Here I am. Let him do to me as it seems good to him. No gimmicks, no superstitions, no rabbit foot religion, no conning God by pilfering the ark. And then he says this, this is not weak resignation, but robust submission. And Faith Community Church, this is the kind of robust submission God desires of each of his children.
Friend, in your thinking, do you allow God to be God? Now, listen, I'm not saying that you're stopping God from being God. Nothing can do that. But the, the question has to do with your thinking, with your thoughts. Do you allow God to be God? Maybe here's a better question. Are you bitter at God? Are you mad at him because he has not given you what you believe you want or need? Or do you exhibit the type of joyful submission we see in David? God, do to me as seems good to you. What? What an incredible statement, and can I tell you, what a freeing statement. A statement that puts all the burden on God. There's joy in that, friend. There's joy in it to say, you know what? I have my plans, I have my aspirations, I have what I think is best for me, but you know what? God, you do to me what you seem is best for me. That is the statement of a man whose glory is God. That is the statement from a man who God bears the most weight and importance in his life. You see, if you are your glory, if your wants and wishes bear the most weight in your life, you will be bitter and angry. But if God is your greatest treasure, if he is your glory, you will have joy and satisfaction even if you don't get the things you think you need. Let us strive to submit to God's rightful authority. However, there's, there's more for us to learn in this passage. And our next lesson actually comes by way of betrayal. Look at verses 30 through 31. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. These are, these are signs of repentance, of mourning. And all the people who were with him covered their heads. And they went up weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel in to foolishness. Now, what you have to understand, as one commentator put it, having Ahithophel as your counselor would be like having Bear Bryant as your football coach or Michael Jordan on your basketball team, right? So when, when David finds out that Ahithophel has locked arms with Absalom, that's bad news for David, but it's actually even deeper than that. Because David is not only losing wise counsel, you know who else he's losing? A good friend. David actually speaks of this painful ex ex um, experience in Psalm 41. In Psalm 41.9, in that verse, David says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. David's referring to Ahithophel. So notice, David prays, that God would thwart the counsel of Ahithophel. And notice what happens next. Look at verse 31. I'm sorry, verse 32. While David was coming to the summit, 
where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai, the archite, came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, if you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I've been your father's servant in the time past, so now I'll be your servant, then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahimaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. So notice, as David climbs the Mount of Olives, he prays that God would thwart the advice of Ahithophel. And then notice, God immediately answers his prayer. And he answers his prayer through this chap named Hushai. And as we're about to see, Hushai is indeed the answer to David's prayer because he's going to subvert the counsel of Ahithophel. Now, again, the, you know, God in his wisdom has given us this text and he's slowing it down for us to see all the various people David meets on his way out of, out of the city. Previously, with the priests, David had an opportunity to manipulate God by taking the ark, but he didn't, right? Well, this is going to set up a contrast with who we meet next, and that's Ziba. Does anyone remember who Ziba was? I'm, I'm hearing, yes. He was the guy put in charge to look after Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, Saul's grandson, right? However, unlike David... Ziba is a manipulator. And the one he tries to manipulate is not God, but David for his own advantage. Look at what happens in verse 1 of chapter 16. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, hundreds of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. Are you hungry? Man, that looks great. <laughs> And the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? And Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, and, and where is your master's son? And Ziba said to the king, behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, today the house of Israel will give back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord, the king. Now, wait a moment. Does that sound right to you? To think for a moment about the extraordinary kindness that David showed Mephibosheth in chapter 9. Welcoming him as a son, not killing him, adopting him, giving him all this stuff. Are we really to believe 
that all of a sudden Mephibosheth, upon hearing Absalom's rise, that he's now forsaken David and going to remain back hoping that the house of Saul is going to be reinstalled once Absalom comes to power? I mean, what are we to make of Ziba's claim in light of the kindness Mephibosheth received? And you know, you know the conclusion we come to? Ziba is lying through his teeth. Tell me, can you think of another reason why Mephibosheth would not be able to go out to meet David? Wild guess. Why do you think that might be? Because he's crippled. <laughs> right? And as we're going to see in chapter 19, we hear Mephibosheth's side of the story, and all becomes clear. Ziba is lying. And I want you to notice, Ziba gives him David some food, but does he give the king, does he follow the king in his suffering? Does he go with David in exile? Does he? No. He stays behind. Because in fact, David will suffer. And that's the final person David meets on his journey. And here's the third thing that I want to draw to your attention. Notice what happens next in verses 5 and following. When King David came to Bahurim, there came out of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Jerah. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men who were on his right and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Can you imagine it? They're walking along the way, and a guy is just chucking stones, throwing rocks, and also hurling insults at David. But what I want you to notice is how Shimei's statements are laced with irony. Notice he interprets David's fate as punishment from God for his blood guilt against the house of Saul. But as the narrative of 1 and 2 Samuel has made abundantly clear, David is not guilty in the deaths of Saul, Jonathan, and the rest of his household. But nevertheless, Shimei's words do contain truth, don't they? Look again at what he says in verse 8. He says that the Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of Absalom and that David has come to ruin because he's a murderer. And you know what? That's true. However, it's not the murder of Saul, but the murder of who? Uriah and several other men to cover it up. Again, as we mentioned, this ruin is in fulfillment of Nathan's word. Now, notice David's response, and here again is another sign of a heart that has God as its glory. Look at verses 9 through 14. Then Abiashai, the son of Zura, said to the king, I love this guy. He says, 
Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. <laughs> he realizes heads that are lopped off can't curse. So he's like, let me go do it, Dave. And the king said, no, no, again, notice, notice David. He said, what have I to do with you? He sends Azura. If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, if, if he is cursing because the Lord said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite leave him alone and let him curse for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite of him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan and there he refreshed himself. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon once said this. He said, Brother, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him. For you are worse than he thinks you to be. If he charges you falsely on some point, yet be satisfied. For if he knew you better, he might change the accusation and you would be no gainer by the correction. He's right. And notice, we see in David a spirit that adopts this point of view, don't we? Notice David recognizes that cursing is what he deserves. However, not for bleeding Saul's house, but for his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. And this is what I want to point out to you. You know what David is doing in these verses? He's doing this, and that is he's adopting a humble spirit. And here we see the final thing of a person whose glory is the Lord, a person who's been disciplined by the Lord. They adopt a humble spirit. And interestingly enough, you, uh, I'm going to go back if I can. Yeah. You know when Spurgeon uttered these words? It was July 1st, 1888. And you know what he was preaching on? The life of David from 2 Samuel. Friend, the person who has God as their glory is not concerned with how well others think about him or her. No, they are more concerned with honoring the Lord in their response. Indeed, they know, like Spurgeon said, that they are far worse than others think they are. Friend, what would it look like for you to give real effort and adopt a humble spirit this week? How would that change the way you respond to correction? How would that change the way you talk about your accomplishments. What if 
you, you, you willingly embrace the mindset that, you know what? I'm not as smart as you think I am. I'm not as pious as you think I am. I'm actually worse. What if we had a humble spirit that saw us for who we truly are, redeemed sinners who are in need of the grace of God each and every day? Friend, are, are you easily irritated? Are you argumentative and get offended quickly? Friend, those are the symptoms of a prideful heart. Yet, there's something else I want you to see in these verses, and, I, and we, as we bring this in for a landing, I truly mean that, and that's this. I want you to notice that in these verses, in David's humility, he also has a deep-seated confidence in God's grace. As several commentators have pointed out, there's a, there's a translation issue with verse 12 of chapter 16. You might even have a footnote there. The English Standard Version says that David hopes that God may look on, quote, the wrong done to me. However, the original text is likely to say, instead of look on the wrong done to me, to instead say, look on my iniquity. Pastor and author Richard Phillips is again helpful here. He says this, the noun avon, that's the Hebrew word, may more naturally be translated as iniquity so that David is hoping that God would look on my guilt and have mercy. And this is, this is what I want you to see. In this case, at the very moment David was aware of God's chastisement for his sins, he also remembered God's promise of forgiveness for his guilt. David has a strong conviction that God has a tendency to replace cursing with goodness. And you know what? David is correct. Shimei is a man who curses but David tells us in this verse that the Lord is a God who may reverse the curse. And in fact, that is precisely what God has done through the greater son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? One, look, one cannot read this section of Scripture and not see the striking similarities between David and the Lord Jesus. Right? Like David, Jesus Christ was betrayed by a trusted friend in his inner circle. In fact, if those words from Psalm 41 that David used in reference to Ahithophel sound familiar, they should because Jesus quoted those very same words in reference to Judas at the Last Supper. After Jesus spoke those words at the Last Supper, he too crossed the brook Kidron. He then went to the Garden of Gethsemane. He too walked on the Mount of Olives. Jesus, too, was rejected by his own people. He, too, wept over the city of Jerusalem. However, Jesus' weeping was not because of what his rejection meant for him, but because of what it would mean for those who rejected him. Yet as striking as these parallels are, and they are extraordinary, there's an even greater significance in the contrasts. While Ittai and others were faithful to David, and stood by their word, when Jesus faced his darkest hour, all his disciples fled. David, in this text, abandoned the city to save his own life. His own life. 
after Jesus wrestled in the Garden of Gethsemane, he went back into the city to lay down his life. And now, friend, here's the greatest contrast between them all. David lost everything because he came under the discipline of God for his own sins. Jesus Christ experienced loss because he came under the judgment of God for our sins that were laid on him. To close, let me once again remind you where this passage fits within the overall story of redemption. A few chapters back in 2 Samuel 7, God made a covenant with David and made extraordinary promises that basically said, look, David, all the previous saving promises I have made, all those previous promises, they're all going to come through and find fulfillment in one of your sons, a Davidic son. And what we've been seeing as we've continued to study the book of 2 Samuel is that the immediate sons of David aren't the guys. Amnon, Absalom, they're all failures. Indeed, all of David's sons, earthly sons, are failures. That's precisely why God sends his own son, born of a virgin, born to a man from the house of David. And friend, this means salvation is only found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And to close, can I ask you, have you put your trust in him? If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, the hardships that God is bringing into your life is not discipline, but it's to awaken you. To awaken you to the desperate state of your soul so that you would put your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Friend, don't let another day pass trusting in your own righteousness, go all in and trusting the perfect performance of the greater son of David, Jesus Christ, that he bore the wrath owed you for your sins on the cross and then he rose triumphantly from the grave. But if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, friend, realize God disciplines us for our good and so that he would be our glory. May we trust his purposes, submit to his authority, and adopt a humble spirit. Amen? Let's pray.